uh, looking at this thing of leadership and looking at eight characteristics uh, that we identify with leadership. Well, the first week was one that typically you wouldn't, humility. And yet I believe not only for uh, um, just the Christian life, for leadership, to truly be a humble leader, to be a servant leader. That's what God calls you to be, to, to, to lead in an understanding way. Last week we looked at loyalty. Probably a better word for us biblically would be faithfulness. And today, we look at uh, the third and, uh, of the sessions, and this does fit uh, with this whole idea of leadership. We look at vision. Here's how Webster defines it. I'll give it to you. Uh, it is an un unusual discernment or foresight. Unusual discernment or foresight. You guys, somebody here is going to have a problem in a minute, because I don't have... <laughs> Uh, this is great. I don't have point A and B. So whatever they are, fill it in. Pick a word that looks like it fits there. Unusual discernment means means unique. Uh, it, it means it's not a vision. It's not necessarily something that everyone has. It's a characteristic that is, is not necessarily commonplace. Remember the senior Bush, when he was president, said, uh, what is it about this vision thing? That coupled with uh, the whole idea that uh, read my lips, no new taxes, is how you elect a governor from Arkansas president. So um, this vision thing, let me just, I mean, this is helpful when we talk about vision because you need it at every area of business. Look at this, somebody gave me this today, this little blue. I'm having a blast because I can, I'm just having fun. Um, in, in, in a business, typical, let's take a business setting or any organization, you have basically three types of people. Number one's the originator. That's the uh, entrepreneur, self-starter type guy or gal. That's the person who's generating all sorts of heat. And uh, typically what is uh, associated with them is chaos. <laughs> but they're the originator. Then there's the organizer. That's what you need. Person, gal, guy sees the whole world as an org chart. Flow, everything's flowing, job descriptions, they love job descriptions, love to write policy manuals, design systems. They take that chaos and, and make order from it. Then the third type of person is, um, is the operator. You give them the policy manual, you go away for 20 years, you come back and it's still running exactly the same way. They, they love just uh, that sort of a thing. And, and you fit in there somewhere. If you are one of those working in another t type of job, you'll be very frustrated. We had a guy uh, who was in this study who was just terrific working in the plant. He was a great operator. But then they all of a sudden made him an organizer and he was struggling. And then they said, we want some creativity from you. And he was absolutely awful. And that's what business does. They take this guy who's working well and think if he can do this, he must, be, uh, must do this better. Rarely does the best salesman make the best sales manager. And yeah, that just doesn't happen. Because what a manager needs is all that structure. A salesman's going, I don't know where the form is. It doesn't, what does it matter? They signed it, ship it. You know, and that's how we work. So I tend to be in that first, that originator. I was at Motorola when I came down here. I was at Motorola, I think, two weeks before I sent my first memo saying, I think we can restructure this. And um, they were not receptive. And to the end, you see their stock prices continue to plummet. 
I was there to help them. If they, and that's true. I could have helped them a lot. Well, here you go. A profile of vision goes like this. Point A, a profile. I'll just read it to you. It must be a, as, it may be as vague as a dream or as precise as a mission statement, but it articulates a view of a realistic, credible, attractive future. Condition that's better in some important way than exists right now. Here you go. Here's the phrase I, I use. It's a, it's a verbal photograph of a future reality. It's to be able to articulate this view. It, it's to be able to somehow bring people together around this view. And they may not see it clearly, but you, but you do to some degree. B is the, the place of vision. Let me read you this. If there is a spark of genius in the leadership function at all, it, it must lie in this transcending ability, a kind of magic to assemble out of all the variety of images and signals and forecasts and alternatives, a clearly articulated vision of the future that is at once simple, easily understood, clearly desirable, and energizing. That's where you may get into it like a vision statement. Uh, the church that I go to, here's, here's how we see it. Here's what you're about. Here's what we are here. Helping one another learn God's truth and live biblically changed lives. Helping one another learn God's truth and live biblically changed lives. So if you're around there for any length of time, you should understand, you know, because all churches kind of have the, we, we operate by the same manual here, the black book. Well, how does this work itself out? Well, we help one another. We're, this, is a, this is a partnership here of learning God's truth to the end that our life changes. And then we even simplify it more into a motto, come, learn, serve. So what are you doing here at East Valley Bible Church? Well, you're in that process. And once you're there, you're, that invitation's open. Now you're learning and serving. You're moving continually. It's a sound bite. We can't say that in a negative way. Sound bites are good. And oftentimes they cast a vision. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I did not have sex with it. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I get them all confused when I think of those great visionaries. There is a verse that we use frequently in Christian circles that has in it this vision deal. And it's most often misused. It's Proverbs 29:18. It says this, "Where there is no vision, the people perish." And oftentimes that's used in conjunction with launching a new program or a building fund or something like that. And, and, and that's not really the intent here. The intent of this is that the vision that they're talking about is the Word of God. When there, when there is no clear uh, uh, preaching, teaching, direction from the Word of God, people perish. They don't know. This is a very confusing world we live in. There's lots of things going on. There's lots of views. I was talking to a guy just this morning who went to visit a, a doctor uh, this week about uh, something uh, on his body and started talking to this doctor and spent an hour and a half with this doctor and, the, and said to the doctor, what do you believe? And he said, it was an hour and a half of the goofiest stuff I've ever heard. And it's like nailing jello to the wall to try to pin the guy down because there's no basis for his belief. I mean, his belief is as, as fickle as the barometric pressure. 
How do you find direction in the sort? We've said it before. I was a forced home teaching a men's conference, and, and, I got, and, and before I got up there trying to set the tone, and this guy said, all right, everybody stand up. He had everybody stand up. He said, at the count of three, I want you to point to true north. One, two, three. And there were arms going in every direction. Exactly what you'd expect. He said, now in your packet, there's a little brown envelope. Open it up. Take out what's in there. Put it in your hand. Lay it down face up. It's a compass. And he says, now I want you to point to true north when I count three. One, two, three, and every hand went to the same place. What's the true north in our life? What's the true north in our life individually? What's the true north in our life collectively? I, I could even say as a society or as a nation. Where do we find true north? Because there's all these competing voices. Well, we find it in the scripture. We find it in God's word. Where there's not a clear proclamation of the word of God, the people will perish. When we talk about vision, let me tell you what I think translates uh, pretty well into our Christian language. That would be faith. If we talk about vision, we're talking about faith. When we talk about faith, probably the classic example would be Abraham. I don't know how much you know about Abraham. You're going to learn a little bit about him today. He was uh, doing pretty well, frankly, and happy where he was, and God called him to a different area. He had all sorts of conflicts within his family. Um, he uh, experiences uh, all sorts of hardship. Things begin to come together for him. Uh, he then uh, is uh, visited and told by God he has, uh, these extraordinary promises will be fulfilled through him, including the birth of a son, and he is now 100 years old, and that son has not arrived. And uh, just 10 years prior to that, he decides to uh, try to solve this uh, dilemma himself. We'll look at it today. And then uh, he has this, this promised son, lives for a few more years with his wife. His wife dies. We don't talk about this very often. His wife dies, and he has five or six more kids. Found little Muffy and brought her home. She must be a little 21-year-old, I'm guessing. And... Um, <laughs> Five or six more kids, and then he finally dies, okay? Abraham, here's some things. You've got them on your outline. Point C, okay? You've got the profile of vision, the, the something else of vision, the place of vision. Now you've got the purpose. No, right, the person of vision. The person of vision, Abraham. Here you go. Here's some characteristics. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them. Here's the first one. A long person of vision is long in perspective, long in perspective. It, uh, it is not typically a visionary who thinks in terms of, of immediacy. A vision person is thinking about things way in the future, is committed to things in the future. Hebrews chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be uh, this afternoon. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. For he was looking forward to the city with the foundation whose architect and builder is God. He's looking forward, looking beyond the immediacy. It's not trying to make decisions based on this quarter's income or earnings, but what's it going to mean three, four, five years from now? It's thinking with an eternal perspective. And I guess... For me, I talk about contentment, and then I think I talk about this all the time. They go hand in glove. You have to be a person who's thinking long term. Uh, last night, uh, we moved Sunday, and uh, la and we've spent actually Susan uh, spent most of this week cleaning. 
the house that we moved out of. And last night was our, well, was, our, was it. And uh, Susan had made a couple of trips during the day, and and we were in there, been in that house almost almost 21 years. And so we're in there, and I, I it had been actually a pretty easy process for me, but I found I found I mean found myself getting very emotional last night, and so. We're trying to get out, and, and, and I'm vacuuming one room, and she's vacuuming another room. And I said, I, I just don't want to go. So I went over and got a couple of cigars if, uh, for her and some ice cream for me. <laughs> and we sat out in the back by the pool on a garbage bag and just kind of in fact, we didn't talk for a long time. I just kind of walked around. And I thought about that's where the girls learned to, to walk and to swim. I could literally stand at the end of that pool and I could see I could see them. It's little girls jumping off that board. I mean, it was... We talked about so many things. In one of the closets we found on the wall, a hole. We had a hamster that had gotten loose and was up in there, and we couldn't get it out. And I put a hole in the wall and couldn't get the hamster out. And Sarah slept every night for a week in the bathtub and finally caught the hamster coming out at night. We talked about all that stuff. <laughs> 20 years. And what I said to Susan is, you know, 20 years, I'll be 73. I wonder if I've got 20 productive years left. She said, I don't think you've had 20 productive years yet. <laughs> I don't think, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, and I was, it was really emotional. I, I don't know why. It was very, very emotional for me. And, and I just thought of all of that stuff. But as I've gotten older, Exactly the opposite of what I thought would occur has happened. I thought as I got older I'd be thinking in terms of days or weeks, but I find myself now thinking more in terms of decades or larger blocks of time. I, I don't want to lose sight of that. I don't want to just, I, I, I don't know what that is. The whole motive in the Christian life, I think, is to think long term. In, in church, we're studying 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, 17, and 18 says this, Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, because the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. There you go. You want a long-term perspective, it's an eternal perspective. Right after that, you know what Paul talks about? He talks about this body being temporary, and then he tells us that as Christians, we're going to be judged. And he tells us all of that so that our motive for life will extend beyond just the bottom line. For the Christian businessman, for the Christian businesswoman, the bottom line is not the bottom line. So we understand that. So I think in terms of long-term perspective, uh, uh, everything in life is not disposable. Maybe you're here, you know, and maybe you're thinking about blowing up a marriage that you're in. Can I tell you something? Not only is it okay, it's the right thing to do to stay together for the sake of the kids. I can't, I can't tell you how often uh, I talk to people who are, especially at the beginning of a divorce, and I'll say, how are the kids doing? And every time I hear the same thing, they're doing great. They're doing great. They're not doing great. They're not. I'm, I'm telling you, they're not. 
and there's all sorts of studies that are coming out now. I deal with people that are 35 and 40 years old that still aren't doing great. It's not at all unusual to have somebody around who's 25 or 30 years old and their parents are getting divorced after 30 or 5 or 40 years of marriage and it's killing these kids. Don't do it. Think long term. I can't tell you how many ladies that we dealt with. We dealt with one Christmas Eve where the doctor had come in and said, listen, the fetus is in trouble here. You're not going to have, you're going to have a baby with problems. And, and, and the doctor saying, I, I just, for, for quality, but here's what the doctor said. I might have talked about it here. The doctor said to her, listen, the quality of life is not going to be good for this baby. She said, what do you think I should do? I said, the quality of my life hasn't been good. It's not a quality of life issue. Do you hear what you're saying? What should I do with a baby? Feed it, burp it, and diaper it. That's what you should do with a baby. Not kill it. That makes no sense at all. It feels good or feels right or gets me over the hump of, 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 of a problem that I have. But I'll tell you, and some of you ladies in here can say amen to it, you will deal with the psychological trauma of that for the rest of your life. You think long term. Here's the second thing. There's an openness to adventure. I like this. Verse 8. Abraham obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. So you and Abraham had a lot in common. <laughs> he said he didn't know. God just simply told him to go. And now, we can take this, I think, and, and, and put it in the wrong light, and all of a sudden, we want to have an Abrahamic experience. In other words, we want to hear from God. Uh, there is a new, this is just my view, there's a new view in the Christian circles that's starting to catch a lot of steam. It's getting very mystical. Um, we're, 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 starting to, we're starting to talk about these... We're taking stuff, life stuff, and making it way too complicated. We had a guy uh, who was at one of the priority living studies. And he saw the one in, at the Thursday morning, and he said, oh, this is incredible. And, and uh, he said, what else do you do it? And I invited him down here, and he came down here. And then he, he went back to Denver. He was from Denver. And he told his friend about it, and his friend called and said, I want to do that in Denver. I want to do what you do in Denver. And I said, okay, I mean, that's fine. And I don't, knock yourself out. And he said, I want to come down and talk to you. And I said, I, why? I mean, what, 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 what for? I mean, I, uh, and he said, well, I want to understand how this, how this came about. I want to understand the, 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 the programming. I want to understand the fundraising. I want to understand. And I said, listen, you're going to be very disappointed when you get down here, buddy. And he said, no, no, I want to come. I said, I wouldn't come. He said, I'm going to come. So he came, and, and he observed this, and he's all jacked about it. He said, I, boy, I want to do that. Plus, watching me makes it look easy, so he thinks he can do it. <laughs> so he sat down, and he said, now, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to tell me, what, what's your 10-year plan? I said, oh, well, I don't know. I don't really have a 10-year plan. That's all right. We'll get back to that. Tell, tell me how you spread the word here. How do you market? TV, radio? Well, word of mouth, sort of. All right. How do, how do, you, how do you finance this stuff? Well, people just send in money. And I'm telling you, you could just see all, it's like somebody licked all the red off his sucker. And I said to him, I said to him, I told you to stay in Denver. 
I, I don't have any formula. This is not like McDonald's where you crank something out. This is, this is what it is. And, and so finally he said, well, at least this. He said, tell me about the call of God on your life to do this. I said, well, I don't, I don't. He said, well, well how did you figure out to do this? I said, oh, now that I can answer. I wanted to do it. And he said, that's it? And I said, yeah. Because I think that's what the Christian life is. You check to see if there's any sin in your life. If there's no sin in your life, and you're not dealing with a moral issue, then you do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Can we embrace how freeing that is? Why do we want to make this so hard? Why do we want to get into all of this yearning and moving and groaning and having to hear all this call? You know, if, if, if what you want to do is go off to seminary and that's just what you want to do, you want to do that as much as you want to eat or sleep, you don't need that. There's your call. Go do it. If God put on your heart somehow or you've got this desire to start this business, it's not a moral issue. It's, it's just wisdom and maybe you screw it up and you do the wrong thing. Who cares? We had a guy in one of the studies, 35 years old, and he said, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about making a job change. I don't want to do what God doesn't want me to do. I want to make it. I want to know that this is God's will, that I go to this job. I have to know that. I'm 35 years old. This will be the last job change in my life. <laughs> he was so bad. Let me tell you this, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. He was so bad that he had gone to Dillard's to buy a pair of gray slacks and he couldn't decide which shade of gray to get, whether to go with a charcoal or a lighter gray. I said, pal, let me help you out here. Do you want to do this? I think so. And I said, well, do it. He said, what if it doesn't work out? I said, it probably won't. You're going to have two or three more jobs. You're 35. You're going to work another 35 years. got to be open. He, he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. We had a guy in one of the studies, went to the doctor, had some problems. The doctor said, you're terminally ill. you got cancer. You're going to die. And, 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 of course, that shook his world up, shook up the friends around him. He started journaling. He lived six years. In those six years, two of his closest friends in independent auto, separate from one another, auto accidents were killed. Broccoli-eating runners, you know, kind of guys. Just another excuse is all. You get it. But you see what I'm saying? You don't know. Here's the third thing. I think it's the third thing. You've got to be willing. Now, I'm going to use a word here, and then I'll give you a synonym for me. You've got to be willing to sacrifice. The word I prefer is invest. By faith, verse 9, by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign land. He's going, he has no idea where he's going. He's just convinced that he wants to go there because he's convinced God called him to go there. He's open to this adventure. He's not, by the way, an adventurous person. If you read the Genesis account of Abraham's life, he's a pretty staid, uh, close to the vest, guarded, not a risk taker. He's in cash. Okay? And now, boom, off he's going. He's gone. He's out running around because he's convinced God's doing that. What is interesting, I am, I am this will help you, I am without 
television till the 20th of, of February. This is incredible. I have not seen Oprah in a week and a half. But Cox can't get out there until the 20th. So I'm reading. And I got a bunch of different things. I just bought a couple of books. I was at Borders this morning, bought a couple of books. But I was reading through this, not exactly a page turner, a survey of Israel's history. Um, but I was reading this the other night, and they're talking about the living conditions at the time of Abraham, the time that he was moving. Here's what they say. Times generally were prosperous. Some 100,000 business documents were discovered in this general area, most of which concerned this period, giving insight. Economic conditions appear, in general, to have been stable. It was a progressive world where the cultural advantages are noble. I'm skipping around here. Artists were skilled, builders competent, business active, times good. We may believe that Abraham clearly a capable person would have availed himself of the educational opportunities. Certainly he gained an appreciation for the cultural niceties when he found it necessary to leave and go where standards could be only lower. But he'd been able to profit from the advantage of these advantages before leaving. Such advantages undoubtedly would have made Abraham's leaving more difficult. I want you to understand that. He's in a good area. You're living in Paradise Valley, God's calling you, and you don't know where, and it's time to go. You obey, and you are willing in that to experience all the sacrifice or investment that, that accompanies that. You see that? If you're going to start to think long term, and you're going to be willing to uh, be open to adventure, there may be sacrifice. Again, I like the word investment. Uh, when I started doing this, I think Sarah was seven and Haley was five. And, uh, and I came home one day and I said to Susan, I think I want to quit and do this. And she said, all right. And she said, uh, I, can I ask a question? I said, sure, what is the question? She said, how will we uh, eat? <laughs> and I said, well, I thought about that. So anyway, that first year, and by the way, that, and this is not, I'm not saying what was me here at all. I love, I don't have any problem here. That first year, our income was less than we paid in income tax the previous year. Now, that's a hard deal. And if you're a gal, you go, oh, well, that's a hard deal. Well, I must have communicated this to the kids because we're walking through the mall one night and uh, I can take it right to the spot at Fiesta Mall. It's right outside of Cinnabon and there's a bench. And we're walking through and Sarah said, oh man, I want to get one of those. And Haley said, you know we can't afford that anymore. And I thought, uh-oh, I've miscommunicated. And I took him right to that bench. I sat down, got down like this. I said, now listen, girls, we've got money. And we've got money for that. We're just choosing not to spend it on this stuff. We're investing it in other places. Do you see that? There's sacrifice. Yeah, there's investment. Here you go. Let's get it away from money. Where are you investing your time? This is the only February 13, 2003 you're ever going to experience. We got people that they'll take money and move it over here for a half of an eighth of a quarter of a point, and then they'll move it over here for a fraction. They'll move it down there for a fraction. Okay, I got that figured out. I understand. Good stewardship. While you're doing that, how much time are you wasting? You go blow 100 grand a day, which probably some of you have done. Go blow 100 grand a day. You go get another 100 grand back. You blow a minute today, you can never get it back. 
and we are such great stewards of our money. We'll look for every tax loophole and everything. Fine, i got no problem with it. Good stewardship. But good stewardship isn't limited to money. It's time, it's energy, it's effort. Where are you investing your life? There you go. Oh, Abraham's ready for a challenge. I like this. He's going to become a papa. Verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah was barren, was, was unable to become a father because he considered himself, was enabled, I'm sorry, to become a father because he considered himself faithful who had made the promise. Here's the promise. God had come to Abraham and he'd made a promise to Abraham. He said that indeed he would be the, uh, the father of, uh, of many nations that, that would trace their lineage back to him, which they did, that he'd give him a land, and that this blessing to the whole earth would come from his lineage. That's Jesus. The problem is he's now 90 years old and there's no kid. You've got to have an offspring for this. There's no offspring. So Sarah says, well, it mustn't be me. So Sarah takes her handmaid and uh, gets together with Abraham and they have this child and, and yet God makes it clear that's not the blessing and now he's 100 years old. Don't sterilize this story. He's 100 years old. She's 90. In fact, when Sarah heard this, that she was going to have this baby at 90, the scripture says she laughed. Sure enough, out out comes Isaac. Think about that. They give old Abraham a call. And they say, you know what, Abraham? We missed your birthday, and we don't want to scare you with a surprise party. You're an old man. You're 100. Can you come? to? We're going to have a party for you for your 100th birthday. Can you come? And he said, hang on. I've got to talk to Sarah. Sarah, can we go? And he comes back and he says, we can go if we can find a babysitter. That's a very funny thing. Right? 100 years old. You're ready for this. I want you again to understand. I don't know where you are in this life thing, but this never ends. You're always to be ready for the challenge that God places before you. My experience has been that as men and women age, as you get older and older and older, there's a tendency to think that you're less and less relevant and that somehow God will use you less. That's exactly the wrong thinking. Many of you have chosen to make yourself obsolete by not even getting in the game. It's very easy. I'm going to give you a little way here to tell, out, to, to, to tell yourself when God's done with you. Here's how you know when God's done with you. You will assume room temperature. Okay? That's how you'll know. When you die, he's done. And maybe it's the very act of dying where you'll impact people in family mode. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, when you start to put it together, all of a sudden, you think long-term and you've got an adventure before you and you're ready to invest. You better be ready for this challenge. Here's the next point. There's three. You be, it, you're able to motivate. In verse 9, it says, Abraham lived in a tent, temporary dwelling, moving around, and so did his kid and his grandkid, Isaac and Jacob. Sarah was barren. But there she is, ready for the task. Verse 17, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, do you know that story? Uh, uh, we have now the, the promised one, a a Abraham uh, at, at, at age 100, and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac's the promised one. This is the one that's coming. Now, years later, we don't know exactly how long. Some think as early as when uh, Isaac was 10 or 12. Others say 25 or so. So we'll say, split it, say 17. 
When he's 17 years old, all of a sudden, the greatest test that Abraham would ever have is put before him. God calls him and says, I want you to take your son, and I want you to take him, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, that's not exactly what Abraham said, is it? Or God said, is it? Because if God would have said, take your son and sacrifice him, Abraham would have said, Ishmael, come here. <laughs> what he said was, take your son, your only son, Isaac. He didn't want to be, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I've got to give you a loophole here. So he takes Isaac along with some servants. They make a three-day journey. Now they come to the mountain. Now it's time for sacrifice. Now they're going up. And as they're going up, apparently not a lot of conversations going on, but all of a sudden Isaac says, Hey, Dad, here's what I noticed. We got a fire. We got some wood. We got a knife. We don't have a sacrifice. And Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. And they get there, and there's no record of any sort of a struggle uh, again, think of it. 17-year-old and 117-year-old. I'm guessing this kid could out-wrestle him, outrun him. He must have cooperated and climbed right up on that altar knowing full well what was going to happen. What took place there? I believe Abraham's faith is contagious. When you're a person of vision, and by that we mean faith, whether you're an originator or an organizer or an operator, it doesn't matter. When you're a person of faith, people around you are excited by it. They're ignited. You want to get a sense of this, good, bad, or indifferent, get around a political campaign. Watch the people who are involved in a campaign that are really committed to what's going on. They're motivated. Get around a church, and all of a sudden, you've got a, a person of vision. And you've got a board that's supporting that vision. And people catch that vision. This is contagious stuff. Abraham's a man of faith, and I believe Isaac caught it like that. And he says, you know what? All I know is he's my dad. And my dad isn't going to do something stupid. If dad says God told him to do it, that's good enough for me. There you go. You better be bold in that commitment. Verse 17 by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice the one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. Remember when I said they went as, as far as a certain place and they left the servants there? Okay? Now, Isaac and Abraham are going, are going together. They're the only two. You know what Abraham said to the servants? We will return. Now, think about this. We know from what happens that Abraham is willing to sacrifice. He knows because God's communicated to him that he wants him to do this. He also knows that God's promised through this boy to, to be literally the lineage to Christ. So he said, you know what? Reasonably speaking, there's only one thing that can happen. God must be able to raise the dead. Nothing else makes any sense. Isn't that amazing? And so he goes, and they prepare the altar, and they prepare the sacrifice, and Abraham stands over Isaac, he raises that knife, and God stops him. It's a great picture of what happened thousands of years later on Calvary 
when God's only son Jesus came and they raised that hammer to pound those nails into his hands and his feet, this time God didn't stop. There's a bold commitment. It's an unusual discernment. It's an understanding of the simplicity of the Christian life. Here's God's Word. Here's what it says. Now we do it. And we do what's right because it's right. Even if it doesn't feel right. A Christian person lives based on the principles of that Word. If the Bible says do it, do it. If the Bible says avoid it, avoid it. And everything else, you've got freedom. You ought to be different. I was talking to a guy the other day. Uh, he's a oh, he's been out of college a couple of years, and and uh, he's doing ministry work. And he went with another guy, and they met a business guy. And this guy was talking about a lot of stuff. And they got in the car, and the guy I'm talking about says, "Is that the way business is?" And he said, "Yeah, that's the way business is. Don't tell the truth very often. When they do, they shade it. All about themselves." Do you live that way? It, it really, it, it, it's been interesting over the years. And, 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 and sex is such an easy way to evaluate this. But it's, over the years, it's been amazing to me how, how many guys and gals who are single come to this study and end up sexually involved with one another. What, what are you thinking about? Can you not hear? What are you doing here? Was this a giant joke? It's really interesting, isn't it? And so we all go, yeah, all the married guys, yeah. Okay, how about you? Okay. Who are told to give an honest day's wage to those people that are working for you, and you're stiffing them, you lord it over them, you're a lousy dad or a lousy mom. What are you thinking about? There's a boldness and commitment. You do what's right, even if it doesn't matter how it feels. It doesn't, if you know it's right, you do what's right. Why? Because it's right. Abraham's ready to go. He doesn't know any. Here's what he knows. God told him to go there. He's got the promise in Isaac. Boom. He can only conclude one thing. I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. Here's the last part. And, and you will have impact. You'll be destined for impact. Verse 12. And so from this one man, he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as sand in the seashore. Do you understand that everyone is watching you? When we think of impact, I fear we think of some grandiose task that we're involved in. I was in a small group, eight guys in there, and, and I was talking to them and I said, how many of you have a mentor? And of course, everybody's got to say yes to that. So they all do. I said, well, tell me who your mentor is. And, and, I, and, and tell me, and they started talking about it. I said, well, how often do you see him? Oh, I don't know, maybe twice a year. One guy said, so-and-so is my mentor. I happened to be meeting that guy afterwards for lunch, and I said, did you know you're this guy's mentor? He said, I wouldn't have guessed that in 100 years. <laughs> you know what's going on there? There's impact. You do not have to sit down in a, in, in a, in a booth at a restaurant and have this ongoing dialogue where you're filling in the blanks to be mentoring somebody. You are touching people's lives all the time. And they're watching you all the time. And I think there's a tendency to underestimate the casual impact you have. Clearly, those of you that are parents are having a profound impact on those kids. 
and teach them real early. And when they're little kids, and, and they say, hello, yeah, I don't know, Sedona, timeshare, I don't know, hang on, I'll get him. Dad, you want to tell him, Sedona, tell him I'm not home. He said, tell him I'm not home. When you do that, do you understand that you've just taught that kid it's okay to lie? I'll tell you something, and I mean this, and I'm not beating this guy up, okay? But I'm telling you, these high school kids who don't know a thing about history, I'll tell you, they learned one thing from the, from the Clinton administration. She had sex, but I didn't. These kids use that all the time. When I was a kid, when we said making out, making out meant kind of sneaking into a drive-in and a little kissing. You know, now, when, you, when your kid says making out to you, I hope you understand that you're talking about all oral sex and beyond. That's all part of making out now. And the girls are delighted because they say they're virgins, and the guys are pleased because they say, I didn't have sex, she did. And they caught that value. That was taught to them by the moral leader of the free world. What a joke. You're destined for impact. You're going to have impact. When you sin, there's impact. So don't do it. This isn't that hard, is it? Don't do it. And when you sin, you're broken. And you repent. Because you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. We're going to screw up. I hope you understand how fragile the people are around you and how closely they're watching everything you do. You would be shocked at the notes I get. You'd be... And, and, I noticed Sunday that you had on a black sock and a blue sock. <laughs> and I want to say, did you get anything I said? Not really. A black sock and a blue sock. I had a time... I'll tell you the story. we got to close. I'm teaching down in Tucson. And, I, I, and, I, and I'm visiting, and I, and I get up, and I'm teaching, and I'm, I'm done. And I say amen, and I look, and I'm not kidding. There's probably 25 people lined up. I said, well, I, I sensed it was powerful. Okay. The first guy up says, hey, you got on a black shoe and a brown shoe. And sure enough, I got two loafers, same model, same make. One's black, one's brown. I said, well, thank you. Next guy, hey. You got on a black shoe and a brown... 25 people lined up to tell me I got on a black shoe and a brown shoe. People are watching every... And you know what? That's okay. When you say you're a Christian, it's okay. That's what Jesus said. Be salt and light. Let him see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. And that's the way life is. Next week, we just continue our study. Father, help us as we try to be men and women who live humbly, faithfully, with faith before a lost and dying world. Help us be good moms and good dads and good husbands and good wives and good employees and good friends and good employers. And let all we do bring honor and glory to you. Father, we pray that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.